all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. Bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Yeah, Kiora. What? <laughs> it's hello and Melody. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'm Rachel. <laughs> I'm David. And this is all bad things. <laughs> okay, that one definitely tripped me up a little bit. <laughs> Hopefully, I pronounced that right. I feel very honored. I got some good compliments from New that. Zealanders yes, about my Maori pronunciation. Thank you so much. Wait I till tried they hear mine. very hard. Oh no. no I'm <laughs> um, I, was, I will spare you all that. <laughs> follow us into Twitter, Facebook at all bad things pod. Email us all bad things pod at gmail.com. Follow us or uh, blah, blah, join our discussion group on Facebook and our Discord. Yes, those things. And welcome everybody. Welcome. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> what you drinking tonight? Oh, I'm drinking. You discovered this. <clears throat> yes, I did. Um, we I, actually. I, I will take credit for it. <laughs> we actually went out and about in downtown Raleigh with masks. To be clear, even though we are vaccinated, we feel a little more comfortable moving out and about in masks. Except we were seated outside mm-hmm. at a bar, Raleigh Times, mm-hmm. um, locally, and. It was actually pretty cool. It was in the sun. It was a little little hot, but um, it was a cool little balcony, or not balcony, rooftop. Kind of, yeah. Rooftop overlooking, like, a little section of downtown. We got to see some interesting... Um, uh, bus maneuvers. Yes, bus maneuvers, because the road was closed. But uh, you ordered this. It is the Wicked Weed uh, Watermelon Dragon Fruit Burst Session Sour. And it's pink. It is. <laughs> and it's very good. It's um, not that sour. Uh, no, it's not. It's not sour at all. It's more sweet, mm-hmm. actually, but not sickly sweet. Because I no. have to like shandies and stuff no, I don't that, that are super sweet. Or Rattlers. That's not my thing. Um, but this is like the right level of sweet mm-hmm. and sour. So, yeah, it's pretty good. What are you drinking? I am having New Belgium's Summer Bliss, which I've never had before until now. And it's, it's actually kind of good. It's got like a little light citrus flavor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. It's, a little on the, it's a little on the sweet side, but not overbearing. Good summer. Not compared to the no, Wicked it's a good Wicked. summer beer. Yeah, that's New Belgium, right? They're mm. in Denver. They're not Asheville. Colorado? Oh, oh yeah, but that's not where they're out of initially. Oh, they're not. Mm-mm. Oh, actually, yeah, you're right. They in are Denver some or Boulder. Boulder, maybe it is Colorado. I, I think. think so. Yeah, Wicked Weed. One of the Colorados. One of, <laughs> one of our many Colorados. Oh, Jesse. I didn't oh, even boy. know he was in here. Neither did I, but that means we're gonna have some Jesse Pinkmans. Probably. Impossible chewing of the script. Yeah. <laughs> He's good at Laying that. on it for sure. Yes. Um, so we had a, a good suggestion, and I'm going to look up who it was so I don't um, forget this. And I'm probably going to have a hard time finding it anyway, probably. But anyway, we have um, gotten a listener's suggestion. I'm still going to be looking through this. Oh, Melissa on Instagram asked uh oh and Melissa's the one who did the the wallpaper the Jesse Pinkman oh yes that's hilarious (laughs) yes it's it's on my uh, lock screen on on one of my phones Mm -hmm. um 
and uh, Melissa suggested that we do an AMA episode, which mm-hmm. will probably drop as like a bonus episode, not a regular episode. Right. But, um, so an Ask Me Anything. We haven't done a and a in a while. We did one a while back. Yeah, it's so, been a couple years at least. I think so. So we're putting a call out there. Um, ask us anything. Uh, email would be especially helpful, but I get that not everybody prefers to communicate that way. So um, you can DM us. You can just put it up on uh, our Facebook. Uh, messages would be a little easier. That way we're sure to see it. Um, but yeah, message us on uh, Insta, Twitter, or Facebook. Or tweet us. Um, and, or email us and ask us anything. Yeah. We can't guarantee we'll answer it. No. But <laughs> you can ask us. Yeah, no harm ask. in asking. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should... It's, it's not called we'll answer anything. That's right. It's called ask us anything. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, well, look. Well, what? What's Jesse's doing? looking for the records. Of course to, he is. To, he's like, where'd they go? To, and there's books there yeah. now, and it's not as easy he's, to... He's like, I guess we're going to have to chew those. Yeah, he probably will. <laughs> But that'll be fun to do. Yeah. I think we've uh, gained some new listeners in the almost four years. We are gaining on our fourth anniversary. Yes, we are. Um, In the pod and in our marriage. So there's that. Yep. Yep. Um, So the topic today, of course, is no surprise to anybody because we covered part one last week. Um, And it's a good thing we've got beer because it's going to be hard to get mm-hmm. through the rest of this story yeah. without uh, <clears throat> wanting to just not think about anything that we're about to talk about. <laughs> so so this is um, the second part of our 2019 Fakari White Island eruption. Uh, so just to recap... On December 9th, 2019, the volcanic New Zealand island of Fakari slash White Island erupted. 47 people were on the island at the time. 22 would die of the eruption, and the remaining 25 were all injured most critically. Mm-hmm. So, like, like, I think I read, and I might say this later, that only three people got away with relatively minor injuries. Three yeah, out of 47 people. I'm honestly surprised it was anybody. I know, right? Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, I printed double sides, so there's... Um, so, a quick little recap. Last episode, we talked about New Zealand's most active volcano, Fakari, and I use... I, instead of calling it Fakari White Island the whole time, which is the official name, I just used the Maori term, Fakari, since that was the original name of the island. Um, and the, and the, obviously, there was tourism there that we discussed as well. There were 47 people on the island on the day of December 9th, 2019, yeah, that's right. 38 were tourists from Royal Caribbean's Ovation of the Seas who took a boat tour on uh, White Island tours, led by four tour guides with the tour boat captain David Plews back on the anchored Tepuyafakari, which is the, um, the, the boat that they, I think it was a catamaran mm-hmm. that they came in on. Volcanic Air also had a helicopter tour group there for German tourists led by pilot and guide Brian DePauw. And then located offshore during the eruption, making like a last circle on the island for sightseeing before departing, was White Island Tours Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where everybody was. At 2.11 p.m., Fakari erupted, sending those on the island reeling from the outpouring of ash, steam, and as we discussed, acid. Yes. So we're not just... Hydrochloric acid. Hydrochloric and, and hydrofluoric uh, yes. acid. 
Mm-hmm. So not just Ash, and, and, not and, and just And they were, not, uh, they, they were not geared up like I am at work. No, they had gas masks. <laughs> That's and it. And not everybody had them on no. because at the moment they didn't necessarily need them. Yeah. You know, it was mostly for the smell of the sulfur and as they mm-hmm. got closer to the vents. I, th- I think I might have mentioned that last week. I don't specifically remember, but the, the amount of shit I've got to put on just when, to, when, yeah. I'm, when I'm adding... Uh, yeah, you said um, huge rubber gloves, yep, like thick. Thick, very thick. Yeah. Like a big, uh-huh. heavy apron Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and a full face shield. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm literally putting in like two ounces. Just like a, an itty bitty <laughs> Now imagine it spewing yeah. in massive no. quantities from a volcano. No yeah. thanks. Yeah. So, and, and having no protective gear on? Jesse no. Pinkman, you do not need to get into the bathroom. Even with the uh, protective gear on, that would still be... Uh, no. Uh, well, no I, thanks. I imagine that all that rubber is what they give you for like a tiny amount. It's yeah. like it would burn through just about anything. It literally probably. comes in like a small vial yeah. like from the from the lab. Yeah. Because he is. He's chewing the books. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to kick him out. We're going to have to kick him out. Yeah. yeah. You can get kicked <laughs> out, Jesse. He's like, that's what I want. <laughs> He's like... <laughs> Anyway, that doesn't work on no, it doesn't. He, <laughs> he, doesn't he doesn't understand us either. <laughs> That's true, too. Okay, so the last thing that we said, we got through the actual eruption. Um, remember, Matt Yuri was had said that it was like walking on the moon, the level of the ash. Mm-hmm. And it, what's so funny is that we all know what he means, right? Yeah. Even though we, we haven't been to the moon, you see the footprints on the mm-hmm. moon and the... In the fake moon landing of 1969, yes. as a conspiracy theorist would say. Um, the MGM Studios moon yeah. <laughs> Well, and it, it, spoiler alert for Fargo, in one of the seasons of Fargo, they kind of included yes, they a weird did. little yes. thing about that. <laughs> um, but, and uh, Stephanie Browett said everyone was petrified, meaning terrified. For their lives, not literally petrified, yes, which because that's what I would yes, have thought. Uh huh. Which is not a an out there thought, especially because um, when we covered Vesuvius, yeah, we've seen it happen. People literally were yeah, petrified. They, they, they still yeah. are. Yep, they still are. To that's this day, absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Something that happened two thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um. So now we're kind of getting into the next uh, section, which is the rescue, which is its own story, which is why this was broken into two. Um, episodes. So, of course, the eruption was immediately known by people, known by people not on the island, right? Sure. There's um, Plews, David Plews, who's mm-hmm. on the Tepuyo Fakati, who was not uh, on the island. He was anchored offshore. And then everybody on the Phoenix witnessed yeah. the whole thing and knew that there were people on there mm-hmm. and they're like, uh-oh, and holy shit. So it's not that there was any lag time in the notice right. of this happening, right? So no, as soon everybody, everybody knew that this situation was fucked, like from the get go. Then that help was going to be needed yeah. immediately. So yeah. the crew aboard the Phoenix notified the Coast Guard in Fakatani, which remember is the uh, coastal town south, uh, south slightly southwest of uh, al- along the North Island. Uh, or south southwest of uh, Fakati on the North Island, where White Island Tours was based, and a civil defense emergency was declared. So that's what called up first responders, right? Uh, the Phoenix. So they had gotten the fuck out of there initially, right, to avoid the ash, 
but they 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 didn't literally just like go all the way back to Fakatani. They just got out of the immediate dangerous vicinity during the eruption. Um, so they re-anchored at a safe distance, and a crew member named Paul Kingy launched a tender back towards the island to help evacuate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he went with at least one other crew member. In the pictures, they show two crew members in uniform. Okay. So one is Paul, and one, I couldn't find the name of the person, but at least two people, including Paul, went. Now, they were actually able to pull three people from the water. Mm. Now, from what I can put together from various accounts... You know what? Those were probably the three people that had the least amount of injury. Well, well, that's possible. I didn't follow up who was who in that. Um, It was kind of hard to put together some of that stuff. Like I said, this is really recent, and these were people who just survived a horrible event, so you can understand why not everyone would want to put their names and information out there. So I didn't dig too hard. But um, do you remember at the end of the last episode, we talked about how Brian DePauw, the helicopter pilot, jumped in the water and told his four tourists to, to do the same. The, yeah, to mm-hmm. get in the water. Only yeah. two jumped in the water. So I think the three people oh, okay. that he that Paul Kingy recovered um, uh, was Brian DePaul and two of the tourists mm-hmm. with him. So that's my guess. But I couldn't find confirmation of that. Um, so of the group, remember the, the group uh, from White Island Tours who were on the island at the time were separated into two groups at mm-hmm. the time. 21 and 21, so because it was 38 people and four guides, so they were separated in even groups of 19 tourists and two guides. Hayden Marshall Inman was leading the first group that was near the crater. And then Kelsey... Uh, Waghorn, that's it. Kelsey Waghorn's group was closer to the shore, getting ready to go into the crater. So they were actually in the safer spot, um, only by comparison, right? Uh, Not that they made it out unscathed, certainly. Um, So the group of the group who were along the shore, so Kelsey's group, those who could and were able to move started making their way to the dock, the little... um, boat launch on the island uh and that's where uh i'm think oh no the the, here's where i'm gonna say i thought i said it last week but no um so they they along with the two volcanic air passengers who did not jump in the water all made their way towards the towards the launch and that's where kingy approached paul kingy and and his crew so among those survivors was Matt and Lauren Yuri, the the honeymooning couple from Virginia. And I mentioned uh, Matt was the one who said about it was like walking on the moon. Uh, Matt would... Now, there's going to be some trigger mm-hmm. warnings yeah. for what burns do to the human body. Um, <clears throat> Matt would later recall that there was... So there's like a metal railing on the... Oh, you God. know, yeah. He, he recalled grabbing the railing and feeling his hand slip. And he realized... <sighs> It oh was his God. skin slipping off his hands. Oh yes, that, I know. Mm. This this yeah. is grisly. This is really really grisly. Um, and Stephanie mm. talked too about like sh- her fingernails hanging off. Mm-hmm. And it, like we're we're not just talking burns. We're talking like shredding and yeah. like really inhuman things happen to these people. Like torturous things. Like it's really I I how any of them are functioning and not just like 
I certainly fucking hope not only did they receive the medical attention they needed, but the mental health attention that you couldn't not need after something that horrible. That you will likely so. need forever. Yes. And you should get yeah. free of charge. <laughs> Fortunately, they're in New Zealand, mm-hmm. so there's a better chance of that happening than here. <laughs> sure as hell isn't happening here. Nope. So, uh, through several trips, Paul Kingy was actually able to shuttle all 21 people from Kelsey's Ovation Group and all five people from Volcanic Air back to the Phoenix. So, he really, he, he immediately got half the group off. So, here's a couple of... Um, pictures because this is from the phoenix people are taking pictures these are people like loading aboard the tender and because it's from far away you kind of can't see that they're all in horrific distress yeah um which is maybe for the best but i mean you can see it's not good and everything is covered in ash yes it looks like a movie set almost it does right yeah i'll need that because we need to oh here we go this is them actually Hmm. on the tender and uh in the 60 Minutes Australia, which is a very good um, segment that they did, interviewing Stephanie and the Yuris and um, John Kozad, uh, I believe his name is, I'll mention him later as well. Uh, they said that that little tender ride was actually incredibly painful because the salt water oh, yeah. and was the, like and the, and get, splashing on them. Yep. And it was hot, so the sun was beating down on them. It, it was just... It was just look at this photo though that's a it, oh yeah well because aesthetic, people have, aesthetically it's a it's a really gorgeous photo well of the island yes, yes not of the people suffering no. in the foreground but yeah well because but, but you can kind of see from this photo why people would want to come here yes and that's what we kind of discussed last week right is that as much as it sounds like a terrible idea to visit an active volcano. Yeah, now that I know there's one there, but if you just showed me a photo of this and was just like, would you go there? I'd be like, hell yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's <laughs> what like, they covered in ash, yes. too. Because the pictures that I showed last week, I mean, they're breath- it's breathtaking. Yeah. It's a breathtaking place. And especially because we talked last week, too, about sort of the false sense of security because nobody had ever died. Well... Nobody who, no tourists have had ever died. Those miners did. But that wasn't even due to an eruption. That was due to a landslide. And it's probably on the market too, right, Emma? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> the tweet. Yes. <laughs> yes, she's, she's back. Emily. Emily. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Glad to have her too. Yes. <laughs> um, but you're, yeah, that's that's still bizarre to me that uh, somebody owns a volcano. I'm I'm still somewhat intrigued. I would not want to buy a thing that killed 47 That's people. That's true. It would just be cool to own a volcano. We just wouldn't tell anybody about that. <laughs> not like it's big news I know, not like anybody couldn't find out anyway. Jeez. So, all t- so that was 26 people who were able to be rescued from the island by boat. All 26 were burned, most severely, oh, some over extremely large portions of oh, their um, body. Oh, yeah. Uh, those well, aboard... just the, the, the amount of, and we talked about in the last episode too, the, just the heat coming off of the... Yeah. Uh... And then, imagine you're burned, and then there's ash all around you, like, rubbing into your... And salt water, Ugh. and sun, and, yeah, yep. I mean, that's... 
And, and we've talked about plenty of times, like, your skin is, like, the most protective organ that you have on your body. And that's if, right. And if that's gone... Yep, and that's the other complication of burns, right, mm-hmm. is that it, it starts... Well, it can get in your lungs. It can get infected. And then infection. Really easily. And, yep, it is what is protecting your internal stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all everyone on the Phoenix basically became de facto like floating hospital staff. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Uh, there were two doctors on board the ship. Thankfully. And they stepped up to assist, although what are you going what to you do? do? Um, they could well, they could probably do... give first aid type of keep people and alive. They could, and they could, and sadly, uh, they could triage, you know. Yeah, yeah. Be like, these three work right. on these, these two, uh, it's not looking so good. Yeah, but obviously treating such severe burns with any real efficacy is something that needs to happen in a hospital, more specifically a burn unit. Um, so some of the survivors required CPR, so people were giving CPR to some of the survivors sure. on board. Um, tourists who had been in the Phoenix group without special medical knowledge did their best to like encourage their Tipuya Fakari counterparts to remain conscious. Like, there are stories of literally them saying, like, you I'm, you have to hang on. You got to hang on. I Like, literally. Well, that that is the, the technique, like, when you're in that kind of situation where somebody's severely injured and mm-hmm. going in and out of consciousness to keep, keep them, them talking. Yep. Keep them talking. Mm-hmm. Yep. Keep them engaged. Keep them awake. Um, there was even a story, and I didn't really include this, but there's a story about... Uh, there was a younger girl on board, the daughter of one of the people who was like kind of trying to encourage them. And she uh, sang a song for them. Mm-hmm. And at one point, like she stopped and one of the survivors was like, no, keep singing, keep mm-hmm. singing. And so she did. I mean, it was just it was really touching. Just the, whatever little thing you can do. Yeah, it was really touching just mm-hmm. how everybody and I can't imagine that also must have been really traumatic to everybody on board to see First of all, that they narrowly escaped. Yeah. That as survivor's guilt and all that stuff. And then second, that they were the first people to try to help in any way. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how helpless they must have felt, too. Like, we're not medical personnel and we don't have... Those doctors probably felt horribly um, helpless because they're like, if I had equipment, I could help you. You know, if I had supplies, I could help you. And... I doubt if they had anything other than like a first aid kit at best, you know. So. Well, I mean, but and and just general training too. I mean, that helps mm-hmm. a lot of so. Yeah. But yeah, it yeah. Now, as for Paul Kingy, he didn't stay on the Phoenix. The Phoenix started heading back to Fakatani. Paul Kingy um, boarded the Tapuya Fakati and made his way back to the shore. And he started, he's like, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can get, he's like, this isn't everybody. They knew that wasn't everybody, right? Because they mm-hmm. knew the size of these this group. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we got 20, 26 people. There's more people on, on, on there, on the island. So he started very carefully making his way towards the crater because he's like, and these guys know the tour group, sure. right? And and the, the route that they take. Mm-hmm. So he knew where they were. So he started making his way towards the crater, obviously very carefully, because, I mean, and at great personal risk, this thing could have kept exploding. Oh, It could have erupted sure. again. So, um... And just all the, the gases in the air. Yes, just, it, it, it would have been a, really it's dangerous. It's still a fucking dangerous place. Even if he had a gas mask, yeah. the whole thing. 
So as he's like making his way towards the crater to his absolute shock, 19-year-old Jesse Langford emerged from the crater, stumbling out of the ash, burned over almost his entire body. He just saw this, this kid completely burned and staggering towards him. So he carefully helped him back to Tepuya Fakati and Captain David Plews just shuttled him the hell back mm-hmm. to Fakatani. Like, okay, I'm... Because clearly that kid had, like, zero time. And Oh, yeah. Seconds, that was a, seconds matter. I cannot imagine kid. the horror yeah. of, like, full throttling across the Bay of Plenty to try and get back to... Like, this kid's life depends on how fast I can... And also the kid, boat. because he's on a boat in the, in the ocean, the kid's also going to get knocked around a bit. <laughs> And like, sunburned but it's, but it's, and salt water. But it's the only way. It's like... Uh, he's pr- the, Probably what David Plews was thinking is, get this the fuck over with. Yeah. Do this as fast as humanly possible. That's what I'd be thinking. Mm-hmm. And Kingy actually stayed behind to continue to look for, to, for survivors. Now, I kind of lose track of Kingy at this point and don't revisit him. Okay. But... He survived. Like, nothing happened to him, and and he was okay. I didn't see anything uh, to to say to the contrary. So at some point, he made it back off the island. I'm just not positive where in the story that happened. So, all right. So back in... So now, they've got half... Well, a little more than half of everybody Mm -hmm. on their way back, right? And did I even... I don't know why this isn't in here but so basically um coast guard met the phoenix about halfway back to fakatani mm-hmm. so then they had um morphine which was a big, oh, big yeah help, yeah and medical personnel so that's how the rest of them got back uh the, the phoenix group got back to fakatani yeah you would need some morphine in this situation for that would be like the number sure. one thing <laughs> yeah. yes the first thing you need to do is mitigate pain because yep. that is inevitable so back in Fakatani, when the eruption occurred, Fakati Helicopter Tour Company Kahu owner Mark Law had been driving along a coastal road when he saw the smoke from the eruption. And this is a picture of Mark Law. And I would say if you wanted somebody in charge, this looks like a man you'd want in charge. Yes, he does. Yeah. Like he's got a don't fuck with me face. Well, he's got a game face. Oh, don't look at that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. double-sided. Right. Um, so uh, he's, I think, if I'm remembering right, he's an ex-Special Forces veteran. <laughs> so, um, yep, strong guy. <laughs> I mean, if, if he was, I mean, uh, New Zealand, they were allies with us during the Iraq War. He, like, he was probably over there. Maybe. If he yeah. was Special Forces, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though it was a busy day for White Island tours and volcanic air, Kahu had no scheduled flights that day. Mm-hmm. Remember, I said that like all those tour companies in Fakatani, even though they were technically rivals, they were also friendly with each other. They had trained with each other, you mm-hmm. know. So so it was more cooperative than competitive, really, amongst them. They were they were amicable. Everyone was amicable. Um, so Mark Law is driving driving down the road and sees the eruption. And as somebody who owns a tour company, where that goes to that island, his mind immediately goes to shit. It's the middle of the day in the summer. There are people on that fucking island. What is going on? So uh, he called his office. He called the Kahu office and told them to contact two of their pilots, Tom Story and Jason Hill. And then he also called Volcanic Air 
owner. Now remember that's Brian DePaul mm-hmm. and his tour group were from Volcanic Air. He called the owner of Volcanic Air, Tim Barrow, who confirmed that his pilot, Brian DePaul, and his group were still on the island. Then Law was contacted, Mark was contacted, by a 69-year-old veteran pilot named John Funnel, who had also seen the eruption from Fakatani. And together, all these guys started forming a plan. So the plan was going to be that Funnel would fly to Fakati with the Kahu helicopters for the purpose of providing radio communication. So... Once on the island, radio communication from those helicopters wouldn't reach back to Fakatani. So what he was going to do is fly over the island while they landed so he could provide a conduit of communication from Fakatani to the helicopters and vice versa. So uh, their intention, the reason they even did this is they're like, they're going they're going to send rescue, right? They're going to send choppers from Coast Guard, from ambulance service, whatever, right? They're going to be sending emergency personnel. Mm-hmm. We know this island because we do tours on it. We can help guide them to where they need to go and provide support, communication sure. support and all. So that's what they were that's what they were thinking. Um they and they thought they could maybe help the first responders find survivors. Or bodies as well. And, of course, in, when you're doing you know, search and rescue, uh, a bird's eye view is always the best yes. view to have. Mm-hmm. So they figured they could and it's not. And them. it's not, I mean, it's not that big of an island either. No, so no they not can, really. So they can cover it from the air pretty easily. And they know where these groups are going. Mm-hmm. They're not on, like, the, the sheer rock wall right. faces. Yeah, they're not, yeah. It's a very limited area where people are actually going to be, and they can see them by air. Exactly. So by 2.50 p.m., uh, Tom Story and Jason Hill, the two, the two uh, pilots that Mark Law had called, had arrived at Kahu, and they took off. They headed to Fakati, and then Law followed them a few minutes later, and Funnel was providing top cover. And then, like, 15 minutes later, Tim Barrow and his co-pilot, Graham Hopcroft, took off, off from Volcanic Air. So now we have three helicopters, just from civilian... Um, tour operators mm-hmm. headed to Fakati with this smaller aircraft providing communication cover. So, so back on Fakati, there were 20 people who remained on the island. So remember, they got uh, 26 people off the island, and then Jesse Langford was found by by Paul. Mm-hmm. So now there's just 20 left in Marshall uh, Hayden Marshall Inman's group. Uh, so those who remain on the island, those 20, and those who had survived the eruption were, uh, like, literally just in a stunned state of shock. Yeah. If they were lucky, and in pain and anguish if they weren't, mm-hmm. right? Um, among them were the three members of the Browett family, who I mentioned, right? Stephanie and Crystal, her little sister Crystal, and uh, their dad, Paul. Now, Stephanie and her father, Paul, didn't know it at the time, but uh, Crystal, who shot the footage of the eruption uh, that would later be found on her phone, she was one of the people who just died. Mm. So, And they didn't know it at the time either. Mm. Because there was no way to know no. where everybody was. No, it was, was just everything chaos. Everything was still chaos, yeah. yeah. Um, none of the survivors could get up or go anywhere. It was kind of miraculous that Jesse had been able to. Um most couldn't even move. 
Some of them were just literally splayed sure. face up or face down on, on the ground. Um, and then the, the sun was beating down on them and on their burns. Uh, Stephanie would say that uh, her dad would call out her name, like literally shout her name every few minutes hmm. to just be like, get, get an audible on her and keep right. her awake. And she said that ended up being extremely helpful. And they couldn't physically make their way over to each other. So Mark Law was the first pilot to make it to Ficati. And then Jason and Tom joined him shortly thereafter. Uh, Now, Law had seen the small group of survivors by air. So he knew where they were. And he had gotten a visual, so he knew where they needed to go. They found Brian DePaul's helicopter, landed, blades destroyed, and covered in ash. Oh that is what the God. eruption did to a helicopter. Jesus. The the blades are literally like in yeah, just, half. Yeah. Split split in half like bowed down from an eruption. Mm-hmm. It's it's so fucked up. Yep. Yeah. It just shows you the the, the power of Yes, of, of that. Yeah. Mm. So the three pilots put on gas masks, and made their way to the site that Law had spotted. So the survivors that they found were confused and largely incoherent, and they were, like, blackened by burn, mm-hmm. by burns and ash. Um, so Law, as I mentioned, was a combat veteran, and he had actually tended to soldiers on the battlefield. So he... This was not an unfamiliar situation for him. It's the perfect situation for somebody with his training. Yes, it was. Or it's good for them that he was there. Exactly. That's how I meant to say it, yes. Mm -hmm. So he knew how to assess injuries. He knew how to comfort the injured. Uh, They found the two guides, Hayden Marshall Inman and Tepene Mangi, and both were unresponsive. Mm. Unfortunately, they had both died. The pilots saw evidence that those that those who could move at some point did actually try to help others. So there were gas masks on some of the victims that seemed to have been placed there after the eruption mm. by others. So, I mean, it's too it was too chaotic to know what exactly right. happened, but it's possible that Hayden or Tepene or both or other people like crawled or walked to other people and tried to protect them by putting on masks. There was evidence of some pretty heroic stuff that people tried to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly suspected that it was the guides because they probably felt, even in their anguish, extremely responsible for the group, you know. This was their job and they were good at it, you know. Um, and there was also evidence, due to the positioning of his body, that Hayden was trying to lead a group of those who could move out of the crater, and that's where they think Jesse came from. So they think that oh, Jesse okay. survived because of Hayden. Okay. And that was how he got to Paul. So despite the grisly scene they found, Law, Hill, and Story, the three pilots, were were happy they arrived in time to start tending to those who were still alive. Because they're like, look, rescue, we're sure, is like right behind us. We just got to help them hang in for like a hot second. But then rescue will get here. And and then we can, you know, we can triage a little bit, figure out what's going on, and then just be able to get the worst of them out as quickly as possible. But one of them, and I'm pretty sure it was Mark Law, later said that he had not a great feeling when they got on the island. And his feeling was that 
wait, why aren't there rescue workers here? Like rescue choppers here. Mm-hmm. If we could make it, how come they're not here? Mm-hmm. And remember there was John Funnel providing air cover for them. He radioed them down on Fakavi and the pilots there and said, um, guys, they're not coming. Mm. None of the search and rescue helicopters that had been dispatched were dispatched to Fakati. They were dispatched to Fakatani, where they sat Uh, and did not dispatch. So these pilots were alone on Fakati without any rescue personnel and with 20 people dead or dying. Mm. So we're going to take a little aside here to talk about... The mechanisms of law in New Zealand as it pertains to um, health and safety, especially in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So we kind of touched on this. Um, we may have in Pike River. I don't remember. That was a little while ago. But in um, remember in the Christchurch uh, earthquake episode, we talked about how strict the building codes were yeah. in, in New Zealand. So there's actually a lot of regulation when it comes to health and safety. And I think we may have also even mentioned um, work safe. But at any rate, let me go back through this. So it, in New Zealand, personal injury compensation works a bit differently than in a lot of other places, especially the United States. So if you have a personal injury claim, right, you can sue anybody and everybody potentially involved, right? Sure. From a business to an individual to everybody in between. To whoever might be responsible. Yes, or yeah. whoever you can make a claim against mm-hmm. being responsible, right? Well, in New Zealand, based on the 1972 Accident Compensation Act, in uh, the 1974, in 1974, the Accident Compensation Corporation, or ACC, was formed. And the idea is that when it comes to accidents, and this is work and non-work related, there's a no-fault system in place in New Zealand that instead, people involved in accidents are compensated directly by the New Zealand government, by a fund um, administered by the Accident Compensation Corporation. So uh, that means that you can't sue an at-fault party for personal injury damages. Now, personal injury damages are different than punitive damages. Mm -hmm. So personal injury damages are just like, I was in this accident and here's my hospital bill. Well, there's a fund to cover that cost, you know, uh, through the the ACC, through this legislation. Um, but you you do have the option to make a case for punitive damages beyond that, for gross negligence, reckless, whatever, whatever. Um, so this plan covers anyone injured within the country. So even a non-citizen or non-resident of New Zealand can get oh, compensated okay. from this fund. So... Uh, and again, for, for injuries, for actual injuries. And it also gave the country's government a vested interest in safety, right? Because if somebody who wa- who gets... wants to do that? <laughs> because if somebody gets injured, it's going to cost the government money. So it behooves the government to make things safe. Can you imagine trying to pass that legislation <laughs> I know, in, in sounds... the United States today? Because here, here is the very first argument. As soon as you said... That money is available to anybody, not just people who live oh, in I know. 
we all know what the first argument would be. People are going to come here and purposefully <laughs> exactly. slip and fall down the stairs. They're purposely they're gonna... going to go to volcanic islands and burn themselves and take all of our money. Yes. All these all these horrible people <laughs> from uh, from other countries oh who are it's... daring to come and steal our land oh, that we stole in the first place. I mean, it's a, mm. I, I, but when you think about just small things like that, like... like Wow, the government has a vested interest in people's safety. Well, this is like, actually <laughs> extremely progressive. Yeah, but but think about like to to us here in it's America, not, it, that kind of seems like a revelation. This like, seems like to, incredible. This seems utopian, like, frankly. Like any other major country in the world, they just take it for granted. They're like, yeah, like we just have that. Well, New Zealand is actually known for being highly progressive. On sure. This, so. Um, so, but, I mean, yeah. And this is back in the 70s. This is 50 year old yeah. legislation, yeah. you know? So, here's the thing. So, that was all in place. Well, at, after that, in the early 2010s, two of the disasters we've covered in New Zealand, Pike River Mine, it happened in 2010. And then the Christchurch earthquake was in 2011. It was like, bam, bam, these two huge national disasters occurred. And that spurred the New Zealand Parli- Parliament to enact legislation in 2013 entitled the Health and Safety Pike River Implementation Bill. And, and by the way, do you know the main reason why the government has a vested interest in your health and safety? Because you're a taxpayer. Yeah, that's that's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, really? Yeah. That's like if all of a sudden you're like this path with COVID, we lost 500,000 plus mm-hmm. 600,000 plus Americans. That includes revenue. Yes. Although you'd also like to think that maybe people also value human life, but well, <laughs> if I'm, we're coming down to a capitalist society, I get it. I'm just trying to sell it. I'm a former <laughs> gotcha. I'm a former salesman. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like that's how that's how, how I would sell it to a capitalist. That's how I would pitch it to a governor. Like, look, uh, if you don't do these health and safety measures and five thousand people die, well, then guess what? That's five thousand less taxpayers you have. And it would have cost you less money to keep them to, safe. To, yeah, it would have cost you way less money. An alive person is a taxpaying person. Yeah. yeah. So this act, the the Health and Safety Pike River Implementation Bill, established a new government agency, Work Safe New Zealand. And they would be the workplace health and safety regular in the country. I think we mentioned them anyway. Um, so, and at the risk of comparing everything to the states, it seems similar to OSHA for okay. this, the U.S., so the Occupational Self Safety and Health Administration. So, while this bill responded to the concerns raised about safety, it actually exacerbated another. So, when the Pike River mine disaster happened, as you may remember, the 29 people who were buried in the mine were never recovered. Now, what we right. didn't cover too much because it hadn't happened at the time we did this episode, uh, Jacinda Barrett, the current parliament, or sorry, New Zealand prime minister, in her campaign had promised to explore rectifying that, like seeing, seeing if they could and look. They, and they tried. So here's what happened. Yeah. Um, so she became prime minister. They did do a bunch of studies to see if it was safe. And then they did actually attempt reentry of the mine. Two months ago, in March 2021, they decided, after digging a couple of kilometers into the mine, that continuing the project was too expensive and not feasible. So And, and probably just too dangerous. Well, so the, the wording they used was too expensive and not feasible, which not feasible just means not possible, which probably means too dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the issue at play here is that initially the recovery efforts way back, like 10 years or 11 years ago now, 
had been halted just after a couple of months. So they didn't even really try all that hard initially to find them. It took that long, you know, nearly a decade for somebody to make a promise of it and finally deliver. Like, no, we're really going to try and find Mm -hmm. and recover these people. Um, But those... That initial attempt, part of the reason that it had been halted is because the recovery efforts uh, were considered too dangerous based on these strict work and and safety regulations. That's what I was trying to say. (laughs) Word salad. So in other words, it was considered a hazard to the rescue workers who worked under the same safety Um, requirements as any other worker. So it was kind of tying the hands of these recovery efforts in a way. Well, in in a sense, it boiled down to kind of, unfortunately, kind of boiled down to damned if you do, damned if you don't. A little bit, yeah, because you're putting people at risk for a rescue effort, and then that could turn into another tragedy. Yeah. But if you don't, then your scene is not doing anything. So, yeah, it is. That would be a really tricky spot. So, um, that's just, I'm just saying that to explain, because I'm explaining this whole backstory of, like, why did no, why were they not sending these rescue personnel to Fakati, right? Now we know why. So, this is the regulatory environment, right? Um, Also, beyond the regulations in place back in 2010, and even beyond the 2013 creation of WorkSafe, additional regulations were instituted for air rescue personnel, this directly affects this story, in the summer of 2018. So like a year and a half before this happened. Uh, oh, sorry, summer of 2018. I think I meant our winter, their summer. So it'd be like two, no, one year before. It explicitly stated that air rescue attempts should, quote, never be to the detriment of flight safety. End quote. And, and that, and that there makes was, sense. And yeah. there was like a laundry list of what qualified no, as I'm a sure. detriment. I'm sure. So that's the regulatory environment in which this eruption took place. Now, this seems, this is a massively complicated issue. There's like a thousand different arguments to be made on both sides, right? Yes. And I'm not going to take this that on because I actually think both sides have some incredibly good points to be made. But... The, the only the argument that I will make that I keep thinking of is if you're the an individual pilot, you're in the chopper by yourself, I think you should be able to declare it's my call, I'm taking the risk. That like, way that way it's, it's I waive my right to right. safety. That way it's this. strictly on you. You're not, not with superior. You're not with anybody. You know, that's But then can you see how much that would make other personnel possibly be vilified right. in the press or whatever? Like that could that's, be That's that's and that's what I'm saying. Like that's the situation it, everybody's a, in. It's a no win situation exactly. regardless. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But that me personally, that'd be the waiver I would give. Like, hey, if somebody's willing to say, Hey, it's my call, I'm going in then But then people could say they felt unduly peer pressured too. Yeah. It's tough. It is. It's really a complicated like what it is, it's a ethically difficult it's not really and it's not really something you can legislate not really well you can but then you end up with this right right? so yeah so back at Fakatane 11 search and rescue helicopters from St. John Medical Ambulance Service had convened by order the explicit decision was made 
to not send these helicopters to Fakari immediately. That call was made by a man named Dr. Tony Smith, who is the medical director of St. John. So in interviews later, specifically the one I saw was in 60 Minutes Australia, he would state that the information he received at the time said it was not safe for his crew to land at Fakati. So he made the call, hey, look, never to the detriment of flight safety, that's in our regulations, it's not safe, we can't go there. The counterpoint to that is the fact that there were three pilots already on the island telling them, communicating back to them, we're here, we're safe, it's safe to come here. So it sounds right. like they were getting conflicting information. And the, the, the choice was, do we err on the side of caution and safety? Or do we trust that what they're telling us is accurate and that we, it's safe for us to go? Again, a kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? But then the, the counter counterpoint to that is that those regulations still may have been stringent enough, enough to disallow action or at least proactively allow the decision to remain in place. So this is this ended up being a pretty contentious point in this entire situation, specifically in that 60 Minutes Australia um, interview. Understandably. The survivors were pretty upset at the fact that this yeah, happened. Yeah. And you can get it because if yeah. you are dying on an island and they're deliberately making the choices you discover later mm-hmm. to not help you, yeah. that would be pretty horrifying. It's a pretty hard sell it, it to would, somebody in that yes. situation because all they're thinking is somebody please come get me. And how dare you and leave right, us. And rightfully yeah. so. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know. So I don't... and. This is a really, you know, when I watched that, when I watched the 60 Minutes thing, I was like, this is awful. How dare they? And it didn't help. I'll tell you that Dr. Tony Smith comes off a little cold, but I think he's just trying to be professional, frankly, but he comes across a little cold. So it was really easy to get caught up in the emotion of it, but Mm. then reading the backstory, it's kind of like, ugh. Yeah, it just makes it worse. It's an uncomfortably difficult ethical situation. And it's really hard to pick a side so I'm not. I'm right. just saying like this, you can see how this, how hard this, this would have been, this like, whole situation. This is one of the few places from an ethical standpoint where you can argue for either Both side. sides. Because, you know, because, and make a legitimate argue for yes, either side. Because what I don't think happened, I don't think that Tony Smith made, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that Tony Smith made that choice as like, eh, fuck him. I don't think he no, did that. No, definitely not. He wouldn't be in that business if, exactly. if he was. He wouldn't be the medical right. director of an ambulance yeah. service if yeah. that was the case. I agree. So that's that's where... But I think the point that the survivors are making is it was overly cautious mm. to their detriment and mm-hmm. that they didn't consider enough what's worth the risk and yeah. what's not. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just so tough. So we're going to keep going from there. Yes. So in the meantime, back on Fakati. Mark Law, Tom Story, Jason Hill, and I'm assuming by this time um, the uh, the guys from Volcanic Air got there too. But I, or no, they they they're coming later. Never mind. All right, they were trying to help survivors, and now they had absolute confirmation nobody's gonna come and help them. So what the fuck do you do when you're like, okay, we're just gonna be here to to help rescue, and then you are the rescue and you are not rescue personnel you know so they decided deliberately to take responsibility and they they literally said that in the interview they're like we just said 
it's on us. Mm-hmm. We've got to do this. Um, they decided it was their own responsibility now to evacuate all of the survivors between the three of them and two helicopters, mm-hmm. which could only carry, I think, four, pa- four or five passengers. I was going to say time. probably not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, as Hillwood stated on 60 Minutes Australia, quote, all we had was us now, mm-hmm. end quote. So they triaged the victims, some of whom had already died in front of them. They started selecting the worst off, so they triaged, but still alive, for the first flight back. They started with Lisa Dallow, who was conscious but actually throwing up blood, so obviously she was pretty bad off. They tried to load up Paul Browett after Lisa, but Paul insisted that they load Stephanie in first. So they loaded Stephanie in, then Paul, and then two other people. So each chopper chopper could only take five people at a time. So the first flight, piloted by Jason Hill, left Fakati at 3.48 p.m. So really, they got him off within, like, 90 minutes. That's pretty damn good for civilians, especially. All of these rescues have been civilian. Considering the conditions, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jason would later state, quote, I had no idea who was alive and who wasn't, Mm. end quote. He kept telling all of those on board his helicopter to stay awake. And that's something that Stephanie would specifically say was helpful in preventing her from losing consciousness. He was flying a helicopter under the most possible stressful possible conditions and still managing to think clearly enough to say, like, Hey, guys, stay awake. Come on, talk to me. That sort of thing. It's amazing. It's amazing. So back on Fakati, Mark Law and Tom's story continued to triage. They selected the next victims for evacuation. And the brief accounts of what they saw sound horrifying. Uh, They were basically combat medics, essentially. And I cannot imagine anyone present on or around that island that day made it out without PTSD. Right. You know. Tim Barrow and Graham Hopcroft arrived, so they're the volcanic air guys, arrived and helped load the next batch of victims onto Law's helicopter. In the entire rescue attempt, they found 12 survivors, and they were able to get 12 people off that island within 40 minutes. That's pretty damn good. Uh Uh-huh, meaning all of the survivors had made it to Fakatani within two hours of the eruption. That's, yeah. Of, by civilians right. helping them. No rescue workers, no cops, no firefighters, nothing. Civilians got everybody off the island in for, in two hours. It's pretty amazing. That's impressive. It is very impressive. The civilian rescuers did have to leave the eight victims all dead back on the sure. island, right? Because it's like bodies can be recovered. Yes. We're needing we to get, get the, the survivors. We gotta get the injured mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, so... As so, the, their choppers back on the way to Fakatani. So Tom Story was on his own in the island. He was the last one left before they came back for him. He had the unenviable task. This poor guy had to move all of the bodies into one area so that they would be found and recovered more mm. easily. By the time he left, the first rescue helicopter arrived and there was nobody left to save. They had Mm. already gotten everybody off the island. And had they waited until the rescue chopper was there, there's no telling who would have still been alive. Certainly less people. Well, so here's the thing. When asked by 60 Minutes Australia about the delay in getting to Fakati, Tony Smith admitted, quote, we have reflective, sorry, we had reflected, we could have flown to the island earlier, end quote. Now, he means that in retrospect, right? Sure. And we know now that it would have been safe. But Smith also stated that he was, quote, 
medically confident, end quote, they could not have saved anyone else. And that's a really annoying sort of little point in the interview. And that's part of what makes him come across not that great is because he's basically saying, well, if we had just arrived two and a half hours later, no one would have no one else would have died or been alive or whatever. Like, it made no difference what these civilians did. And that's really dismissive, especially because he couldn't know that for sure. Of course not. But he's saying he's, oh, I'm confident that this would have been the case. And that seems a little, frankly, a little arrogant. Or maybe he's just having to delude himself to feel better. I don't know. That I mean, that could be as well. And, yeah... Because he's got to live with the fact that he every, didn't send rescue helicopters. And every everybody in this everybody in the story is in kind of a no win situation. Everyone in this story had hor- no good decision to make. Yeah, like it was just really nothing good was going to come from this. So yeah. So for Stephanie Browett, there was no question. She is convinced she would have died if she had to wait for the rescuers. Um, all of the survivors, like, unilaterally were like, these guys are heroes mm-hmm. who, who saved us. Uh, so in either case, it's clear that the pilots who responded, and well as the ship captains and crew, they were the key to getting the survivors to help as quickly as possible. And uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't think we've had a disaster where civilians were the the soul the soul rescue yeah the lifeline I don't, we, I don't think we have either the lifeline for all these people were civilians like literally just the now the people on the ships like everyone acted in my opinion very heroically here yeah, the people absolutely. on on the ships were reacting to like their immediate vicinity right those helicopter pilots went the Full the fuck out of their way to do mm-hmm. what they did. Yep. Like that was that was like the belly of the beast shit that they were doing. So I mean I think they're all heroes, but also those chopper pilots were like fucking Rambo level, mm-hmm. like getting shit done. It's pretty amazing. I kind of feel like um, I I do, I do not like the idea of ever going in a helicopter. They seem scary to me. But fuck, if Mark Law was riding driving that helicopter, I'd go in be in, fine. in a second. Yeah. Yes, any of these guys. They they are clearly knew what they were doing. So, so the aftermath, which is ongoing, because this is a year yes. and a half later. So, <clears throat> or right as we're recording, White Island Tours immediately shut down tours to Fakati for. Extremely obvious reasons. Uh, Chairman Paul Quinn also released a statement saying, quote, Devastation is an understatement. This is a terrible tragedy, and our thoughts and prayers are with everyone who has been impacted. End quote. And remember, they lost employees, too. Mm-hmm. Um, two guides. Because mm-hmm. uh, Hayden, Marshall Inman, and uh, Tepeni Mangi both died. And they were two of the bodies that had been mm-hmm. So there were, of course, still eight people left on the island, the ones who were known to have been casualties. A military recovery squad of eight people, including six bomb unit members, eventually went to Fakati wearing hazmat suits on December 13th, four days after the eruption. That's when they decided it was safe to do recovery work. And the first person they identified was 21-year-old Crystal Browett, so Stephanie's Mm. little sister and Paul's daughter. They were eventually able to recover six of the eight bodies. So this is in the life sometimes adds insult to injury. This is one of the most horrifying details of this whole thing. Hayden Marshall Inman's body had actually been found and recovered 
two days earlier, mm-hmm. on December 11th, he was found by Navy divers. Okay. So it's thought that due to weather events and like rain, his body had actually been washed out to sea. Okay. And Navy divers found him. Hmm. So uh, they recovered his body, pulled it on board their ship, and then here's where just life is fucked up sometimes. Uh, the weather got really rough aboard the ship, and they dropped his body overboard accidentally in oh. the rough water. Um, and his body fell into water so deep that they could not recover his mm. body. So they found him, and they lost him, and mm. he's somewhere in the Bay of Plenty, which is horrifying Yeah, that that happened to him. Um, I hope... That on some level, because he, he was the guy I showed you a picture of last week with the lobsters, yes. you know, the mm-hmm. very rugged mm-hmm. sort of outdoorsy guy. I hope well, maybe if then his... I, then again, maybe that's fitting. You like, know, that's what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe, and I really hope his family found some comfort that, like, he was an adventurer at sea and yeah, like that's, that's where he, he would ended have up in the sea. Buried you know? anyway. Yeah, I hope so, because otherwise that's just horrid. That's the, that's the silver lining I'm going with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was one other body never recovered. That was 17-year-old Winona Langford. That's Jesse's little sister. Uh, she was never found. She was thought to have been swept out to sea. Um, Mm. and Hayden and Winona were eventually declared officially dead on January 23rd, 2020. Mm. So in all, 22 people would die. I don't know why I said it that way. 22. 22. (laughs) I liked it, though. 22 people would die as a result of the Fakati eruption, and 25 survived. So most of the survivors were from Kelsey's group near the shore, right? They they were not as close to the actual vents in the crater. Of her group, the casualties were Chris Kozad and Paul and Mary Singh, meaning that so three people died in her group, 18 survived. And the numbers were the exact opposite for Hayden's group. Mm-hmm. 18 died, three survived. Wow. Um, volcanic air pilot Brian DePaw survived, as did three of the four of his group. So one of the, his group, 64-year-old Horst Westenfelder, did not survive. He actually became the final victim. Mm. Uh, in fact, when you look at a lot of these uh, earlier articles, and earlier I just mean within like six months or so of the eruption, they say 21 dead, and that's because Horst hadn't died yet. Oh, okay. He died in July, and they didn't confirm his death as being related to the eruption until um, just November of last year. Okay. So. Uh, the remaining victims I haven't named yet. Uh, so there's Tepengi Mangi. I did mention him. The other guide. Uh, mother and daughter Julie and Jessica Richards. Gavin Dallow and his stepdaughter Zoe Hosking. Remember Lisa Dallow was one of the more severely injured that yes. they first um, triaged out. Jason Griffiths and his friend, his friends, couple Carla Matthews and Rick Elzer. Martin and Barbara Hollander and their teenage sons, Ben and Matthew. That was an entire family that mm-hmm. died, a family of four. And, yeah, teenagers, too. I think um, Matthew was the the youngest victim at 13. Mm. And I think Horst was the oldest at 64. And then Christine and Anthony Langford, so Winona and Jesse's parents. So Jesse, who survived that horrible ordeal, was the sole survivor of mm. his family. And then Paul Browett. Stephanie's father also died a month after his rescue from the island. So for those who survived, the fight like had really just begun. Like the initial survival was 
the beginning yeah. of the rest of their lives being mm-hmm. a life of survival, right? Um, they were obviously very badly burned by steam, ash, the acid produced in the eruption. Um, some, like Stephanie, uh, in fact, many were either in natural or medically induced comas. Sure. Both Paul and Stephanie were. Um, and then some, like Stephanie and like Lisa Dallow, Gavin Dallow's uh, wife and Zoe Hosking's mother, had to learn of the deaths of their family members while in the hospital mm. in horrible pain. Uh, when she found out that Crystal was dead, Stephanie said, quote, I wish I could have been there for her last moments, end mm. quote. John Kozad, Chris Kozad's father, had missed his son's funeral because he had been in a coma. He was still in a coma yeah. when they had to have the funeral for his son. And in that 60 Minutes Australia segment, they asked him, how much do you miss him? And he responded, aw, heaps. Hmm. And then he said, quote, I'm sorry, it was not me instead. Hmm. End quote. And that's just the survivor's guilt. I can't even imagine. When Stephanie's father, Paul, died, Stephanie said, quote, it broke me a little. End quote. Stephanie said, quote, it's so hard not to, and she might feel guilty, when you've lost people you loved, you love, end quote. So, obviously, memorials, remembrance services, GoFundMe campaigns, other outpourings uh, occurred. The extent of many of the survivors' burns were incredibly extensive. The country of New Zealand had to put in an order for nearly 34 square meters or almost 112 square feet of skin oh for God. skin grafts for the survivors. That's about enough for to cover 16 human bodies. That's how much Jesus. skin they needed. Can you imagine? Imagine having ordering? to order that. I know. It's so it's bizarre. So but yeah, that's, of course, how else do you get it? You have to order it. Yeah. I mean, not from a catalog or a website. No, but... they, they probably have it on Amazon now. Jeez. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, God. I, I'm sure it... I'm sure it comes with Prime. No. Yes. No. Here's, here's your box of skin. If that ever happens, <laughs> capitalism has gone tar- far too fucking far. No. 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 Uh, oh, God. No. So, um, some of the most extensive injuries were to Jesse Langford. Yeah. Uh, who sustained burns to 90% Jesus of his body. Christ. Here's the fucking thing, though. Jesse survived mm-hmm. with 90% burns. Mm-hmm. God, that's just, oh my God. Also, 19-year-old Jake Milbank, remember, he was the guy, it it was his birthday? Mm -hmm. It was his 19th birthday that day? He had burns to 80% of his body. Mm. And Stephanie Browett had burns to 70% of her body. She was in the hospital for six months straight um, following her injuries. And uh, I've got a picture. This is her homecoming. That's her with her mom, Marie. Mm with balloons and there's a video Mm -hmm. um surrounding it and we'll talk a little bit about like her mask and stuff too um so uh many lost fingers to amputation stephanie lost Mm, most of her at least partial fingers and many are still going through including stephanie oh i'm sure i'm sure painful surgeries and treatments I'm Even sure. a year and a half after the eruption, it's not going to end anytime well, I, soon. I think it'll probably be forever. A lifelong, yeah. yeah. 
I, I agree. Um, if you want to see more information on the healing process for these victims, I cannot recommend enough that you follow Stephanie on social media. That is how I learned about this whole thing to begin with. Um, so she is at Steffi Wabey, S-T-E-P-H-Y-W-A-B-Y on TikTok. And she's on Instagram at Stephanie Coral, C-O-R-A-L 96. <clears throat> um, she also has a YouTube account under Stephanie Coral Browitt, and that's B-R-O-W-I-T-T. And one of the things she talks about and is also just visually apparent from her videos and pictures is that <clears throat> she wears a compression mask. In fact, I don't think there are any pictures and she hasn't shared, which obviously, of course, um, of her face since... She, she just always wears that mask, which is probably medically necessary, too. Yeah. Well, duh, medically yeah. necessary, yeah. Um, also, gloves, sleeves, like, uh, leggings, sort of. She even, um, she did a, a TikTok recently that was uh, really, I'm just like, this is so cool. She was doing, like, a little how-to on, like, oh, if, if you're a burn victim and you need to wear these sleeves, you know how tight they are? Well, it can really help to have zippers put in. Like, like little how-tos mm -hmm. and DIYs. It, it was really, really cool. Um, and obviously, the purpose of this is to help her skin recover. So here are um, some pictures. These are Stephanie's legs. She did show oh her legs. Wow. Uh-huh which are obviously extensively burned. That's Stephanie before mm -hmm. um, the eruption. That's her now. That's her dog. She mm -hmm. finds a lot of comfort in her little dog. Sure. Um, it's very cute. And uh, she wears, in here, She's in this picture, she's wearing um, a black mask and, and sleeves and such. She tends to wear, like, beige-colored ones mm -hmm. in a lot of her videos. But, um, so, uh, I, I cannot recommend enough that you follow her. She's amazing. And, um, just never read the comments because oh there are, Do, are people really leaving? So I don't typically read, I, I actually don't read comments on TikTok cause I don't even want to, but sometimes she has actually addressed them directly and it's like people, it's like, are you human even that you're saying some of these things? Apparently not. Like, it, who the fuck would be hateful to someone who went through what she right? did? That's just like, you must hate yourself so much to feel the need to put somebody in such a circumstance down like that. It's just like, it's really hard not to just think, well, you're really subhuman, aren't you? <laughs> yes. You know, it's, 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 it's like now that the Pentagon has admitted UFOs are real, it's like just... Just please get it over with. Like, come for us. It's, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah, like, you're, help us. You're our only hope. Yeah. Help me, Obi-Wan. Yes. Oh, my God, yeah. So as for legal action, like I said, this happened less than two years ago. There's personal injury fund, right? So, mm -hmm. so as far as I can well, tell. There, well, there was until all the illegal immigrants stole it. Now it no, doesn't exist anymore. No, this I'm, is New Zealand. I'm kidding. So... I assume, based on that information, that literally everyone, and this includes people who repatriated mm -hmm. and, and didn't just stay in New Zealand, like the people who are from Australia went back to Australian hospitals, etc., that they are, their medical bills are not a concern. Sure. That is being paid out of that fund, right, the, from the ACC. Um, but that does not preclude criminal action, and it doesn't sure. preclude um, civil action for punitive damages, that makes right? Sense. Yeah. So uh, many of the survivors have retained legal counsel and either have or are considering pursuing legal actions. In fact, Stephanie addressed in a TikTok video um, 
people were asking about like circumstances surrounding the day of the eruption or whatever. And she said, you know, I can only talk about so much because I've been advised by legal counsel not to share too much. Basically meaning, you know, yeah, if there might be some legal action yeah. coming up. so And they've got time. I imagine the, the statute of limitations is nowhere near being up. It was a year and a half ago. So some of the survivors like Lauren Yuri are especially upset that emergency responders did not respond in a timely manner. Uh, she said, quote, it infuriates me, mm. end quote. In April 2020, a civil suit was filed against Royal Caribbean by the ovation victims. As far as I can tell, that's still pending. In November... Yeah, that'll, that'll be pending for a while, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. Unless they settle, but mm -hmm. yeah. In November 2020, after nearly a year-long investigation undertaken by the New Zealand police in WorkSafe New Zealand, criminal charges were brought against 13 defendants who are still facing these charges... Um, their names were all revealed in March of this year, and the next action is scheduled for next month, June 2021. Mm. And here are the defendants. Eris Limited, the Buttles, James, Peter, and Andrew, the ones who own the island, the $72,000 island or whatever. GNS Science, remember, they're the ones with the warning system. So oh, okay, some... okay. ID Tours, Infinite Charters. Kahu, mm -hmm. New Zealand, mm -hmm. the National Emergency Management Agency. So this is also sure. like government agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said criminal, but that's what I assume because this is from pending a legal investigation. So that's all I can think of. Anyway, Taranga Tourism Services, Volcanic Air, Safaris, Fakati Management, which is run by the Buttles, and White Island Tours. It has been made clear that none of the charges relate to any events following the eruption. So that means everyone who participated in the rescue of the victims of the eruption will not be facing any charges mm. for their efforts. And um, there's a large civil outcry for that as well. Um, there was a, a petition signed by nearly 90,000 people like, don't you dare bring charges against any of those chopper pilots because right. they were... Um, they were the ones who gave anybody hope to make it out of there alive. So, oh God. and that, my friends, was the horrible story of the 2019 uh, Fakati White Island eruption. Um, like I said, please follow Stephanie if you're on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, she's amazing and really open really really open she talks about a lot yeah, you about, showed me a couple yeah videos. she yeah. talks about the treatments she gets mm -hmm. um what it entails she gives like little tips and hints on living with with burns and, and injuries Which, oh god I, I can't imagine she was 23 mm -hmm. when this happened and like the rest of, her, the life, rest of her life yeah and her life changed in a fucking heartbeat on doing something fun that was supposed to be fun mm -hmm. and cool and an experience and not only did her life change forever and what the rest of her life is gonna look like but now it's her and her mom yep and her dad and her sister died and the the most heartbreaking videos she puts up are the ones that are like in memory of her sure her dad and her sister and just and it's still only a year and a half out. And the fact yeah. that she's able to talk about it as openly as she does, um, like, she deserves a fucking medal. I, I mean, I, I would, I didn't read anything about any, like, civilian honors for those 
um, pilots either, but I like I think they fucking deserve something. Yes. Um, at the very least, I hope they're getting their mental health taken care of. Yeah. Uh, free and clear. Hopefully, that's. I mean, <laughs> it's easy to just compare it all to the uh, to America, where it'd be just like <laughs> you're fucking on your own. But like, no, you get back to work. Right. That's how you get over it. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. So. What are, you, what are you lazy? Right. So, you can see why that was not a tale that could be told in one episode. No. Like, this is, this was massive. Um, and the, the rescue was a whole other bad thing in and itself. It's, it's also, like, kind of one of the few modern cases we have of what it takes to rescue people after a volcanic eruption. Right? Like, like it's not... We haven't even covered Mount St. Helens yet. No. Which is, yeah. Because the volcanic uh, eruption episodes we've done are mostly like, well, it resulted in a tsunami, like the box or an earth an earthquake that yeah. happens. Um, um, it's yeah, it's just it's one of those it's it's wait, a phenomenon. The, the sorry, Boxing what? Day was was an earthquake, right? It wasn't a, a volcano. That's correct. An okay, earthquake, yeah, an, underwa- sorry, was, an underwater I was earthquake. Wrong about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's such a phenomenon because it's such a powerful thing and it doesn't happen very often. Well, and you, usually people are far enough from yes. it. I mean, and, and no, for nobody Fikari, really, yes, yeah, nobody, nobody lives on that. there. No. Uh, no. Um, it was the tourism that was the problem and that is being brought up a lot. Like, who the fuck would say it's safe to tour, tour an a active, volcano? An active volcano. An, a very, New Zealand's most active volcano. Yeah. So that, I mean, and that is... The other thing about this circumstance that is so, like, fascinating in a horrible way is, like, the really, like, not cut and driedness about much of it. Yeah. In terms of liability, in terms of choices made, in terms of, well, okay, you shouldn't, you shouldn't visit an active volcano. What are you, what are you nuts? Um... But then also, like, uh, you see pictures of it. It's fucking gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It is. And people do a lot of dangerous things in tourism. Yes, they do. People fucking climb Everest, and that's dangerous as shit. It's killing way more people. People with zero experience mountain climbing climb the most difficult mountain in the world. And hundreds of people have died as a result. And it's still Including the tour guides, for the most part. Yes. Usually the Sherpas, yes. So... So, well, human beings are... Always have been, always will be into doing dangerous shit. It's I just think the kind thing of... that's the the kind of the eh part about it is people capitalizing off of sure. people willing to do that. Yeah. Um, but then the other tricky thing is like Sorry. White Island Tours, Sorry. where this group was from, is also owned by the Maori people or a tribe of Maori. So it's like, well, so they kind of have the right to do this if they. Uh, it's so. It is. It is a. It is a. Very gray situation with so many points to be made. It's a highly nuanced situation That's what it is. It is nuanced. It is nuanced and it's just as frustrating as that is because there's no... It's it's nice to just be able to say, you fucker, it was your capitalism that caused this, you know? At the same time, like, life just isn't that... It's not that simple. It, it, It is. And this is one of the most nuanced cases i think there have been obviously i mean in my opinion my first like empathy goes towards the survivors and the families and friends of the the victims um and i would say like 
their lead <laughs> as far as who is they think is to blame or whatever is should be taken. Um, and then also just that, that there was some really pretty amazing heroism from uh, pretty, whether they knew yeah. what they were getting into or not, yeah. they did it. Uh, of those uh, pilots and and uh, Paul Kingy and and all all of the people who helped on the boat, like that's um, I just really hope they are all getting mental health help because I don't think you make it out of that without needing a lot of support, and I really hope they're getting that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's who this was a bad thing. Yeah, this was not fun. <laughs> Two-parter. No. Not, not that any of them are. No. Nope. But... Uh, this, it, this is just so fucking recent. It is. And, and has just, such and just a... Her, and con- just horrific. Yes. And it has such contemporary ties and is yeah. still ongoing. So it's, it's just... And usually, usually, I wait until most things are wrapped up, right, before going into it. This one, I just felt was... Honestly, as Stephanie and her presence and um, her willingness to talk about it, I'm like, we need to talk about this because she's doing some pretty amazing. What she's doing is amazing work, not in terms of like a charity per se or like a advocacy or whatever, but in like awareness mm-hmm. and openness yeah. of what it's like to go through something yeah. like this. And she's really remarkable and I cannot... I cannot recommend enough that she's at, at the oldest. She's 25 now, right? Because mm-hmm. she was 23 at the time and just how much, um, gumption that takes and how much, like how we know how vulnerable it feels to just have a podcast that somebody can give a one star review to, Yeah, but fucking give us a one star review all day. Do not no. go trolling a survivor of this shit. No. Like talk about being, uh, like I can't, I can't even talk about uh, yeah, that without being yeah, that absolutely is, uh, livid. So sadly, it's not surprising, but it's just like wow. It's just like okay. Yeah. So be kind, everybody. Although we don't need to tell our listeners that we have kind we do listeners. Not. We, we do are very not. kind listeners. We we have good people. Yes, we do. Yay. Well, that was the 2019 Fukari White Island Eruption Part 2. Mm-hmm. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. And we'll see you next week.